This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the NBC News of the World broadcast from the morning of December 1st, 1942. It includes updates on the war from Moscow, Australia, London, Cairo, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast where you can find links to past episodes as well as any of the books and movies featured in our podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good morning, everyone. Here is the latest news reported by NBC correspondents direct from world capitals and fighting fronts. For a summary of all developments up to the moment... We take you first to Kerry Longmire and the newsroom in Washington. Last July and August, long before the Nazi army ever got close to Stalingrad, we used to hear the name Voronezh in the news every day. Voronezh is a town on the Upper Don River, 300 miles northwest of Stalingrad, just halfway between there and Moscow. Doubtless you remember the many days of battle at Voronezh in which first the Nazis, then the Russians, crossed and recrossed that river. Today, it seems Voronezh may be a new key to Russia's offensive strategy. The Soviet troops have hung on grimly to this little fortress of resistance, lying directly athwart the Germans' flank, athwart the Nazi flank in the south, that is. Voronezh, that town which Russia battled so desperately to hold months ago, now furnishes a base from which Russian troops can slice southward and cut off a huge army of Nazis, cut off even more than the 300,000 now bottled up directly in front of Stalingrad itself. It's apparent today that that's exactly what Marshal Temeshenko is trying to do. A Nazi official in Berlin complains that Russia is preparing to launch another giant offensive from Voronezh. Marshal Temeshenko is already killing Nazis by the thousands around Stalingrad. And another Russian drive, as we know, is smashing westward up on the northern front, west of Moscow. This new assault at the center, striking from Voronezh, may turn out to be the heaviest of all. We'll have to look for news of this later on. In Tunisia today, the British and American armies driving toward the cities of Bizerta and Tunis are still advancing. The railroad linking the Axis armies in these two cities has already been cut by our men. Now they are slicing straight forward to cut the coastal highway, the last line of communication for Hitler's armies. One Axis report says our big guns are already shelling Tunis. 
British parachute troops have grabbed another Tunisian airfield, and British and American bombers keep up their pasting of Axis troops and Axis airfields. Yesterday, the Allied pilots smashed hard at two airbases in Sicily. And Washington heard for the first time today that Pierre Laval almost succeeded in hurling France into a declaration of open warfare against us. He tried desperately to force such a move in Vichy after we invaded Africa. But the cabinet vote at Vichy was 8-6 to six against Laval and against war. That story has just been told by a French diplomat now safe somewhere in Europe. Here at home, the main news this morning is the start of nationwide gasoline rationing, or as the president calls it more accurately, mileage rationing. Autoists in states away from the eastern seaboard were making a mad scramble up until last midnight to get gas. And despite warnings from fire departments, a lot of gas is now stored in anything from regular gasoline drums to open dishpans. And that's all from Washington. Our first overseas report this morning comes from Russia. We take you now to Robert Magadoff in Moscow. This is Robert Magadoff speaking from Moscow. The battle for that final powerfully fortified area which will stand or fall with the Rizhev, about 120 miles from the northwest of Moscow, has entered a decisive stage. No one appreciates the importance of Rizhev more than the Germans themselves, demanding that the city be held at any cost. Hitler warned the garrison that the fall of Rizhev would be equivalent to the loss of half of Berlin. Well, if that is so, at least a quarter of Berlin is already gone, for the Red Army is in possession of some sections of Rizhev, while the larger part of the city, that's still in German hands, has lost all its railway links to the enemy rear, and the Soviet offensive all around Rzhev is still going strong. But the complete capture of the city and the surrounding area is a job of first magnitude. Rzhev alone is defended by two tank divisions and crack infantry and motorized infantry units. It's surrounded with a triple ring of elaborate fortifications, including anti-tank officers, minefields, and the cleverly coordinated fire points. The weather has proved a no-mean ally to the German forces defending the Rzhev area, with a heavy blizzard raging and slowing up the advance and keeping the Russian planes grounded. Still, the Soviet forces have already made serious inroads into the south of this incredibly tough nut, with a large part of the credit going to the giant Voroshilov tanks and the magnificent medium-weight T-34. The Germans are fighting like men possessed, fighting to the last ditch, and are counter-attacking time and again. At one place, every man of the garrison of 400 had to be wiped out before the Russians could call that place their own. They are storming forward, trying to complete the encirclement of Rzhev by depriving it of the few highways that still feed the garrison of the city. Many, many hundreds of miles to the southeast, the Russians are tightening their grip on another vital German line of communication, the Stalingrad Tikhorevskaya Railroad, along which the Russians have captured uh, several more points. Goodbye from Moscow. Next, across the continent and the Pacific Ocean to Australia, and the report of George Thomas Folster. This is George Thomas Folster speaking from Australia. 
It was announced today that the Australia will supply the bulk of Allied food requirements in the Pacific. Plans are being made to turn Australia into one of the greatest food supply centers in the Allied nations. This will require the building up of a gigantic food industry to feed the thousands of troops throughout the Pacific zone. Figures that have been given to Australian officials, the quotas that have been set for them, are staggering compared with what was expected of the Commonwealth until a few months ago. It is understood that this huge expansion is linked with a weekend declaration by the Minister for Supply and Shipping, Mr. Beasley, that additional aid to Australia is on the way from America. This is just another indication that after we have the North African position well in hand and the plan of the European war is clearly outlined, the Allies also intend to concentrate upon the problem of knocking the Japs back to Tokyo. This new food plan has come about, it is said, because United States authorities have informed the Australian government that because of the shipping position, all traffic from America to Australia must concentrate upon the delivery of other vital war supplies. This means that foodstuffs, except in very exceptional circumstances, will not be shipped. It all boils down to this. If the U.S. provides munitions and manpower to assist Australia's limited resources, Australia will produce the food. Observers here are of the opinion that this latest pooling of resources indicates another step in the right direction and that Allied global strategy is developing at last on a worthwhile scale. Beyond this brief announcement, we have no information as to how this new plan will affect the Australian manpower scheme. It would seem obvious, however, that if the food industry is to be built up here, it will necess necessitate the shifting around of some of the workers. It may mean that some of the people from the land who have found jobs in munition factories in cities and towns will be called upon to go back to the land. It is doubtful whether any of the military forces will be affected by the new plan. In any event, this is indeed a constructive move where Australia is well suited by nature and environment to be the rider for all Allied forces in this part of the world. This is George Thomas Foster speaking from Australia. You're listening to the overseas service of the ABC. And now we bring you direct reports on the North African battlefront and the latest developments in Britain. Go ahead, Edward Doyce in London. This is London. Allied forces in Tunisia are consolidating their newly won positions in preparation for a two-pronged simultaneous attack against Tunis and Bizerta. A French headquarters communique broadcast from both Morocco and Algiers radio stations stated that the situation was eminently satisfactory. Allied air strength, the communique declared, was steadily increasing in numbers of planes, in quality, and in variability of types. Heavy Allied bombers last night again rained bombs on the Bizerta docks. The situation in France seems to be poised on knife edge. A spokesman of the Wilhelmstrasse in Berlin let it be known that after disarmament measures in France have been completed, there will remain only the question of a possible change in the government. Laval, he said, is at the moment engaged on other, more important things, but the matter, matter will be dealt with soon. The gates of the Toulon naval arsenal remain closed today. Yesterday, the workers refused to respond to a summons to return to their jobs. It is expected that martial law will be declared, and it is reported that the authorities are considering issuing a threat that if the workers do not return by a stipulated time, they will be deported for work in Germany. The Commandant, Vice Admiral Marquis, 
issued an official naval casualty list of the fighting and scuttling operations when the Germans marched in. The list, which is said to be complete, includes one officer and 100 ratings killed. Last week it was stated that the casualties among the military personnel were four dead and 27 injured. In London, the British government has been forced to yield to parliamentary clamor for a clear-cut statement about the position of Dalan in North Africa. Mr. Eden in the House of Commons today announced that a government statement would be made on the military and political situation there, but not in public session. A secret meeting will be held at the earliest opportunity. War Minister Sir James Grigg, replying to questions revealed that captured Italian generals were being paid $110 a month while in British captivity, exclusive of board and lodging, which they get free. Sir James explained that the arrangement was reciprocal. Butchering is becoming a dangerous occupation in wartime England. Butcher Arthur Woodward might have been blown to bits by a live cannon shell embedded in a carcass of beef he was cutting up. The shell that he extracted from the forequarter of the animal was four and a half inches long. The cow had been killed by a German sneak raider which machine gunned a village. Great excitement was caused in Southern Ireland by Minister Sean Lemas' statement last night that he believed the general election in era inevitable. The period before the election, he said, will be one of danger to our national safety and internal stability, but in the circumstances created by leaders of the opposition parties, it is better to have an election and get it over with. And now to Grant Parr in Cairo. Hello, New York. This is Grant Parr speaking from Cairo, Egypt. As the weather cleared over the Aguila Front and adjacent areas, some air fighting and road stopping developed. Over the enemy's forward positions just east of Aguila, Allied fighters fought and shot down two Messerschmitt 109. The night before, other Allied pursuits shot up the Aguila Road. A Junkers 88 bomber which visited the Benghazi area was brought down by air action. And yesterday, a Junkers 88 bomb points near Magroon, south of Benghazi, but this one got away. Except for patrol crashes, the Aguila Front remained quiet. The island of Pantelleria lies 45 miles off Cape Bon, Tunisia, in the narrow Mediterranean Strait, south of Sicily. It obviously complicates the use of these waters by Allied vessels or aircraft, for on it are based some German planes. Pantelleria is strategically the Malta of the Axis, but of course it has never had to face air blitzes since the two nearby shores, Sicily and Tunisia, have always been either in Axis or neutral hands. But recent events indicate that Pantelleria may not always be so fortunate. Yesterday, a small Italian merchant ship was entering Pantelleria Harbor when fast British light bombers whipped in at mass level and put two small bombs squarely on the ship's deck. There came a heavy explosion followed by puffs of black and white smoke. One raider flew so low that it damaged its propeller on the vessel's starboard bow. But the important thing about this raid was that it showed that the air over the Sicilian Strait no longer belongs to the Axis. The enemy forces on Pantelleria must look anxiously at the cloudy winter skies and wonder what they will do when the storms come. When Alexander the Great came to Egypt at the height of his power, he visited the world-famous oracle of Jupiter Ammon at Siwa Oasis. Even in the Roman era, Siwa was renowned as being holy. Then in modern times, the Sanusi Arabs of Libya came to Siwa fleeing Italian persecution. 
This green spot near the frontier became the holy place of these Arabs who are now allies of Britain. The Italians occupied the oasis when Rommel reached Alamein. They locked up the chief because he would not tell where British petrol was hidden. The other day, the chief, Czech Ali, pointed to the mud wall of a courtyard. As soon as he drove in a pickaxe, uncovered five 44-gallon drums of gasoline, which Czech Ali handed over to a Royal Air Force sergeant. That's the latest news. Keep tuned to this station for it. This is the National Broadcasting Company.